So I'm a little short on time this morning because of other things. So I'm going to do a quick exposition of Psalm 119. (laughs) That's my test to see who knows your Bible. No, let's jump right in. I'll be a little bit more brief than usual. In developing the um, wonderful skill of writing, one mistake that wonderful amateur writers often make is to inadvertently repeat a wonderful word too many times, and this can reveal that although the writer might be a wonderful person, his writing may be less than wonderful, and readers sure won't think it's wonderful. Now, what's the word you're going to be thinking about until Christ returns? Wonderful. Just by saying this, I've already drawn your attention to something that's distracting, and that word wonderful will be in your head for a long time because that, that's an effective, uh, effective way to be a terrible writer with one exception. The Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, this is precisely what the Holy Spirit desired as he inspired this Gospel because there's a word that he repeats 98 times in the Gospel. It, it's meant to ring in your hearts. It's the clear driving purpose of this divinely authorized biography of the life and ministry of Christ, and that word is believe. 98 times, over and over again. I won't read all 98 examples. I was tempted, but you can get a flavor for this emphasis. The gospel states this as the purpose right out of the starting gate. Speaking of John the Baptist's message of Christ, in John 1, verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. When Jesus changed water into wine in in John chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Most famously, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This word appears in 18 of 21 chapters of John and appropriately appears twice, number 97 and 98, the last time it appears in the purpose statement of John's gospel. This is the purpose statement, John 20, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's our focus, I think, appropriately this morning in our last message in the mini-series that we've called A Faith Checkup. And as an under-shepherd of God's people, it is my responsibility, it is my charge, it is my duty before God to challenge God's people, to challenge you to make sure that you know that you know that you know that Christ is, in fact, your Savior and that the work of regeneration has, in fact, happened in your life. And so we've used John chapter 12 to initiate these tests, to ask some hard questions. We've asked, do you love Christ? Do you worship Christ? Do you follow Christ? Do you understand Christ? And today, I think appropriately, we'll finish this series. Do you believe Christ? Do you believe Christ? And we'll look at John chapter 12, verses 35 through 50. That's all the way to the end of the chapter. And just by way of reminder, Jesus is in Jerusalem during Passover week. He's now just days from his arrest and crucifixion. He's very openly now declared his impending death. In verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. But when he made this declaration, the crowd that had been listening to his speech, they expressed confusion, they expressed unbelief. They know that Messiah is said in Scripture to come and reign forever. 
And yet Jesus identifies himself using the term the son of man. And he says he's going to die. But Jesus has also said that he's the Messiah. So how can the Messiah who's supposed to reign forever and the son of man who's supposed to die be the same person? The Jews are incredulous. They're unbelieving. They're basically asking, how can Messiah and son of man be one guy? And in verse 34, they express this unbelief. So the crowd answered them, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever, that is Messiah. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so now Jesus answers their questions, not directly as usual, but indirectly. He doesn't answer them the way they want, but in the way he wants. And so this morning, in accordance with the other messages that we've offered, I just want to finish our question of the day with some added words. Our question today is, do you believe Christ? We'll finish that sentence and this series with three final questions. First, do you believe Christ's urgency? Do you believe Christ's urgency? John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Now you can tell in this first little paragraph here that there's a a key theme, and that is light. And this is returning all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, this familiar theme. It goes all the way back to the prologue. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus has already explained what he means when he says, walk while you have the light. There isn't a hard interpretive issue here. This isn't a mystery. In John 9, verse 5, he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. By the way, after he left, who becomes the light of the world? You do. That's another topic for another day. But this is very simple. This isn't hard to understand. Jesus is simply saying, I'm here right now. I am in your midst. I am the solution to your enmity with God. I'm the solution to your sin, to your death. I am your introduction to eternity. And so there's an urgency. There's a hurry here. You know, this is something that Jesus never says. He never says, carefully consider all the facts of the gospel and maybe ponder this for a few months. He never says that. Sometimes someone might say, don't don't rush to Jesus. Take your time thinking about the Christian faith and come to a rational decision. You know what I would say the only rational decision is? To rush to Jesus. The message of the gospel is not take your time. The message is, as modeled by Christ here, says, you know the truth now. I'm right here now. Come to me now. The irrational decision is to wait. Well, let me take my soul into my own hands. Let me walk out into this world in which people die every minute. And let me take my chances and roll the dice that maybe I'll make it and maybe I won't. If I were in your shoes and I were questioning my faith right now, I literally wouldn't get out of my seat because it's the only safe place on earth until I knew I was right before the Lord. Now, sometimes those of us who hold to the biblical doctrine of election, sometimes labeled somewhat derogatorily Calvinists after the reformer John Calvin, who helped articulate the doctrines of grace, sometimes we're accused of not having an urgency to plead the cross, to appeal to faith, to beg 
for repentance, to, to implore the false believer to grasp Christ. Sometimes we're accused of being too relaxed. Well, let me tell you what John Calvin himself wrote about the proclamation of the gospel. He says it's a call to repent. He says we're to exhort to repentance. He said repentance must be preached. It must be proclaimed with all power. He said that the person must renounce himself and take, I love this quote, take his farewell of the world. He said you must crucify the old man. You must rise unto newness of life. In other words, the original Calvinist would preach, come to Christ now. What are you waiting for? Scripture teaches that salvation is wholly and solely the work of God. We understand this. And yet a person is urged and implored to act by believing right now, right now, right now, and not waiting. In fact, we're warned of the urgency of the gospel in Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In other words, you're consumed by the darkness of sin for all time because you were told the truth and you ignored it. I don't worry as much about the lost person who is hearing the gospel for the first time. I worry more about the lost person who's hearing the gospel for the thousandth time. There's a hardness of heart and there's an accountability before God. What are you going to say? Oh, if I had only heard it a thousand and one times, I would have believed. But they'll be consumed by the darkness of sin for all time. But those who would believe now become, verse uh, verse 36, sons of light. Sons of light. You're transferred into the realm of not just God's kingdom citizens, but of being his children, part of his household, his beloved, his family. I mean, there's so many illustrations. You're, you're taken from being an enemy to a friend, from being a sinner to a saint. You're taken from hell to heaven. You're taken from being rejected to accepted, from hopelessness to certainty, from judgment to reward. If I can put it this way, from the white throne judgment to white robes of righteousness. You're taken from spiritual poverty to spiritual wealth. You're taken from separation to belonging. You're taken from being degenerate to being regenerate. You're taken from being a slave to a son or a daughter. I, I mean, the, the illustrations from Scripture alone are just endless. Why would you wait? I mean, imagine that somebody comes through the door here and with a wheelbarrow of gold and with deeds to houses and lands and, and all kinds of wealth ready to give it out. And he comes up and pulls out an envelope and opens it and, and calls one of you up and says, Dave Thomas, you have won all of this. And Dave goes, I, I'd like to pray about this for a while. He's not going to do that. He's going to be running over you, stepping on your faces to get up here to claim what has been given to him. Why would anyone hesitate to come to Christ? Why would they hesitate? You will never then ever experience the horror of being thrust headlong into eternity at your own death with no hope, no recourse, no going back. You will never experience that. You will never experience another condemning word from God, ever. And now instead, we eagerly long to see our eldest brother in the faith, the Lord Jesus himself. Do you believe Christ's urgency? Here's a second question we could ask. Do you believe Christ's standard? 
that you believe Christ's standard. Now, it's going to take a little time to get to what Christ's standard actually is. Our, our text gives some really serious and important theological groundwork that we need to cover. In John's gospel now, we see the ultimate result and the, and the climactic end of the public ministry of Jesus, his public ministry to Israel. It's a tragic ending, and the point really where the, the patience of God now comes to an end Second half of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So we come to the end of his ministry. But here's where we get a lesson in theology that that will lead us to Christ's standard of salvation. Israel has now demonstrated unbelief and he leaves. But now the theological lesson that we have has to do with the causes of, of that unbelief, the cause of their unbelief, and it brings us into the realm of the interaction between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And those are the two causes of unbelief. God completely sovereign over the hearts of mankind, and yet mankind completely responsible and culpable for their willful rebellion against God. So those are the two causes, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Look first at the sovereignty of God, beginning in verse 38. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And we'll start right there for a moment, just a side note on verse 41. Isaiah here in verse 41 is referencing, this is a reference rather to Isaiah chapter 6, the vision of the glory of God that the prophet Isaiah experienced. And John confirms in this Holy Spirit inspired text of the gospel of John that the glory of God that Isaiah was seeing was none none other than the pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ on the throne of God. And so the glory of God comes into view here but, but John's point here in quoting these prophecies from Isaiah 53 in verse 38 and then Isaiah 6 in verse 40 is to show that the unbelief of Israel is not outside of God's plan. It was part of God's plan. God wasn't telling his angels back to the drawing board, we got to figure this thing out. I thought everyone would believe. This was part of his plan. John quotes Isaiah's question from Isaiah 53, 1, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The answer is, not very many. Not many. Why? Because, in verse 40, citing Isaiah 6, because God had chosen to blind their spiritual eyes. That was his choice. That was his call. Now, you might say, how cruel of God to prevent them from believing. Well, first of all, we don't stand in judgment of God Humanity is sinful. We can't believe on our own anyway. Ephesians 2 makes this very clear. You didn't want to believe. You didn't want to find God. You didn't want anything to do with him. Romans 3 says there is none who seeks after God. But secondly, just in case you might be tempted to accuse God of evil, God accomplishes his purposes in a sinful world through the first sinner one who deeply does not want you to see the glory of Christ, does not want you to be saved. And this first sinner, of course, is Satan himself, sometimes called 
the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 explains this interaction. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, just like Isaiah here, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And just like God used Satan in his own purposes in the life of Job, God uses Satan for his own purposes in the lives of unbelievers. God is the cause of unbelief. And instead of judging the Bible, remember that the Bible will judge you. We do not stand in judgment of God. If God wants to cause unbelief, that is his problem. That is his issue. That is his thing to deal with. Why is this so important? Because we do not have a low view of the sovereignty of God. We have a high view of the sovereignty of God. And yet, at the same time, simultaneously, mankind is fully responsible for their unbelief. And that's the other, the other cause of unbelief, mankind's responsibility. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now here's kind of a puzzle. Some of these leaders professed an initial belief on the Lord Jesus Christ, but they wanted to believe on their terms. They wanted to keep their belief a secret. They wanted to keep their position in the synagogue. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to be called out. Their faith is inadequate. It is lacking. It is incomplete. They were the two-day wonder or the two-week wonder or the two-month wonder that in my time in the ministry, I've seen in the church all the time. Somebody who gets really, really excited about Jesus and then we never see them again. The ones initially professing faith in Christ, but when the first pressure comes, the first little chance to stand up for, for Christ, they fall away. What does that mean? Does that mean that they lost their salvation? No, it means that they weren't ever saved in the first place. They believed, but not unto salvation. The Bible says that even demons believe in Jesus. They just can't believe the salvation. But I want you to notice something here. And this is a, this is a misunderstanding of this issue. God didn't harden their hearts against their will. They wanted to rebel. They wanted to be sinful. They wanted to try to ride the fence. This is their fault. This is their choice. The mythical person that says, I want to be saved, but you won't let me, does not exist. The person who says with their mouth, I want to be saved, but says with their actions, I don't really, does exist. It was fear of the Pharisees which led to their refusal to come all the way to Christ. Now, someone might say, well, that's a contradiction. Unbelief can't be caused by God 100% and caused by man 100%. Says who? What authority higher than God are you going to appeal to? This is when we have a choice to make. Will we worship only a God we can fully grasp or will we be drawn to worship an ungraspable God? Do we really believe Romans 11.33? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In God's sovereign plan, he chose unbelief for most while they're fully responsible. And this is exactly what they wanted. But God would bring good out of this. God is not a cruel God. He's a good God. The good he would bring is found in Romans 11. 
the, the verse Romans eleven thirty three about the, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. This is in the context of Romans 9, 10, and 11, which explains how God is going to bring back a saved and a sanctified and a regenerated Israel someday. And in the same passage, Paul explains why God caused the hardened hearts of Israel for a time. There, there's a reason for it. Guess who the reason is for? It was for you. And then it was for them. Just a few verses into Romans 11. Romans 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall, meaning that God is done with them forever? He says, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. You know what part of your role is? Is for the unsaved Jew to look at you and say, I don't know how, but this person has a relationship with Yahweh that I do not have, and to make them jealous. And the eventual result of this jealousy, the very next verse, Romans eleven twelve, uses the phrase, the full inclusion of Israel in God's redemptive plan. Okay, now we've got the theological underpinning and understanding. We can ask the question, do you believe Christ's standard? What is his standard? We'll begin in verse 42 again. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I like the New American Standard. It says they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The whole entire question of your salvation has to do with gaining God's approval. That's it. That's what salvation is, gaining his approval as a sinner. And God's approval is gained only in Christ, only through Christ, through his work of substitute sacrifice on the cross. That's the issue that determines heaven or hell. There is no other issue. Do you have God's approval by virtue of believing and obeying the gospel and submitting to Christ? That's the issue. But these false believers fell short of that standard. They tried to ride the fence. I want to be a believer in Christ, but I want to keep all the benefits that I have in this world. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? In other words, choose the world or your soul. Which one do you want? So what is Christ's standard? What is his high standard? Well, it's what's illustrated in the God-given picture of marriage between one man and one woman. Here's the Bible's definition of marriage. The original constitution of marriage is found in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and the woman become one flesh. They're united in mind, body, spirit, soul, Their lives become intertwined, intermingled. They even have babies. They're a genetic mixture of this new unit. And this means the severing of the priority of the previous parent-child relationship. It means that the married couple, the unit, is no longer trying to please mom and dad. Now they're trying to please each other. There is a change in priority. In the realm of salvation, you have parents. Your parents are all that call to us promising fulfillment and happiness in this world. 
It's what John calls in 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And Christ's standard is that you must leave your earthly parents. You must leave them behind. Everything that would hinder you from total devotion to Christ and you join with Christ and Christ alone and now your goal is to please him, not to please your earthly parents. How many... How many will be in hell because they tried to be loyal to the world and to Christ and you cannot have both? How many will be in hell because they tried to believe Christ and homosexuality at the same time? How many will be in hell because they tried to believe Christ and feminism at the same time? How many will be in hell because they tried to believe Christ and the idolatry of radical environmentalism at the same time? How many will be in hell because they tried to believe Christ and pursue extramarital relationships at the same time? How many will be in hell because they tried to believe Christ and pursue materialism, the love of worldly things at the same time? The list goes on and on. If I can put it this way, you do not come to Christ with luggage. You come naked and ashamed. You don't come bringing your favorite things. You don't come saying, hang on a moment, let me hook this trailer on and we'll go together. Do you believe Christ's standard? Well, I have a third and final question this morning. Final question of our whole series. This might be your final chance to check your faith. Do you believe Christ's words? Do you believe Christ's words? We now have a final sermon. It's a sermon of such epic importance that it isn't given by Jesus in any light tones at all. He cries out. He's not trying to make anyone feel good about themselves. He's not trying to make you feel like a winner on Monday morning. He's not trying to give a congregation an emotional high five. He's not trying to bring out the champion in all of us. He's not trying to convince you that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is the final opportunity given in John's gospel And the next five chapters now are all private. They're all with his disciples. And after that, he goes to the cross. This is the final chance. Here is his final sermon in the Gospel of John to the public. Verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, if we were to outline this sermon, the main theme is the words of Christ. And we could outline it as as follows. There's an introduction in verses 44 through 46. Jesus Christ is the full representation of God as fully God. Believing in God is accomplished by believing in Christ Jesus. He is the light who shines the way to reconciliation with God. So his words matter. And that would lead us, if we're outlining this, to the main theme of the message, the words of Christ. And the words of Christ accomplish two tasks. The first task, they issue judgment. They give judgment. 
In verses 47 and 48, Jesus says that he did not come to to the world to be a judge. He will next time, but not this time. But he came speaking words. He gave words, and these words will be the basis of the judgment and the condemnation of all who reject him. It's with words that God represents himself in Christ. And by the way, we could extrapolate a bigger principle in the form of what's called a syllogism, a a logical argument. It's a three-part argument. Here it is. Humanity is judged by the words of Christ. The words of Christ are Scripture, according to Romans 10, 17. Therefore, humanity is judged by Scripture. So when somebody says, by what right does God have to judge me? This is his right. You heard his words and ignored them, and he will compare your life to the words of Scripture, to the words of Christ. And so the words of Christ issue judgment. But they accomplish a second task in this little sermonette of Jesus. The second task is that the words of Christ issue life. They issue life. In verses 49 and 50, Jesus speaks on the authority of his Father, speaking what the, what the Father has commanded him to speak. He is to speak the commands of the Father, and the Father has commanded eternal life. In other words, he has given to the Son the power, the authority, the ability to speak life to your soul. That if Jesus Christ points at you and says, you will be with me forever, you have life. And so his words issue life. And then he gives a conclusion regarding the words of Christ, the end of verse 50. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, the point of all this is that you cannot get away from the fact that to be forgiven of your sins, to be a child of the living God, to be clean before God, to be justified, to be made holy, you must believe the words of Christ. You must. And really, Jesus is now ending his public ministry where John's gospel began. Verses 44 and 45, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. John 1, 14, Jesus is the visible glory of God. Here in verse 46, Jesus came into the world as light to save people from spiritual darkness. And we've already read 1 John 1, 4 and 5, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Then in verses 47 through 50, you have this theme, my words, my words, the word that I have spoken, the Father has given me what to say, what to speak. I say as the Father has told me, Words, 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 words. What does John 1, 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the ministry of Jesus has come full circle, and his final plea is, believe my words, believe my words, believe my words. Because it's the basis on his words that you will either enter into judgment or you will enter into life. And those are the two categories of all human beings. There is not a third category. Well, we spent the last number of Sundays giving this faith checkup, reminding you that it is possible to be a church attender and yet not be in Christ. My hope is that God will use these humble messages to reveal false faith and to save the lost who may be among us or listening to this message. I want to tell you one story. I've told it before, but it's, It's well worth retelling. Our former youth pastor, James Street, he counts as one of his key moments in his own salvation, the testimony of his mother, Janie. And it is with her permission that I share her story again. 
She was a pastor's wife. Dr. John Street is her husband. He's preached in this pulpit. She was active in the church. She was busy about the things of the Lord. She was raising her children. She was reading the Bible. She was trying to be a good wife and a good mother. She heard the gospel regularly. She knew the gospel inside and out. She knew the hymns. She lived her life in the church. But as a middle-aged adult, she came to the realization that she didn't have faith in Christ. She had faith in a childhood confession she had made. And there's a big difference. She calls it a fire insurance confession. And her faith was not in Christ, but in that confession. There was no repentance. There was no humbling of herself before the Lord. And I can only imagine how humbling it must have been coming to this realization and publicly coming to the front of her husband's church and confessing that she had been deceiving herself and that she had just now come to full faith in Christ. And she came to full faith in Christ. She repented of her sin. She did it publicly. She believed with all of her heart that she needed Christ as her Savior and as her Lord. She'd been fooling herself. She'd been fooling everyone else, but the light of the gospel shone through to her and she was transferred for real into the kingdom of Christ. As a matter of fact, she has a brother who made the same childhood confession which was false and had faith in his confession, not in Christ, only came to full saving faith a few years ago and by God's grace and mercy suddenly passed away just before Thanksgiving of this year. But Jamie rejoiced that he too had done a faith checkup and that he had found his faith wanting and had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. The very words of Christ will be your judge Who knows if these very scriptures may not be read back to you at the great white throne judgment. Who knows if perhaps these very sermons will be brought back to your mind as the Lord judge Jesus condemns you for refusing to believe. And he says, I told you, I told you, I told you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Don't be that person. Instead, Be the man in Mark 9 who recognized his insufficient faith and cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Be that person. Amen. Our Father, I I know this is asking a lot, but I pray that there would not be a single unregenerate person in this room. I know this is asking even more, but I pray there would not be a single unregenerate person listening to this message that even now, Lord, you might be working in the hearts of those who are quietly panicked because they've been in church or been hearing the gospel for so many years and yet have never had faith in Christ. They've had faith in everything else around him, faith in the church, faith in confession, faith in having some sort of experience at, at, at communion, faith in their own baptism, faith in everything except Jesus. So, Lord, would you work in the hearts of those now And we pray for the four categories we have addressed, Lord. We pray for the believers who are secure in in their salvation, that you would lend to them even more rejoicing, even more worship because of their security. And we pray for the believer in Christ who is not walking in the manner worthy and and that, that his or her life is so messed up and so backwards 
that it does cause them to question their faith. We pray for them, Lord, that the conviction of, of guilt would come upon them so that they might walk with Christ in a way that's pleasing to him because of the great mercy he's shown. And we pray, Lord, for the third category, for the unbeliever who even now may be quaking and shaking and fearful, knowing that some childhood confession or a false baptism or, or some spiritual experience was, was pointless. It was empty. It was useless. It was vain. It was void. And that they must come fully to Christ, bearing no luggage, no baggage, but only their sin. And we would pray for your mercy on the fourth category, the unbeliever who is smug and secure in his own self-righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would break through that hard wall, through those blind eyes, open the eyes, unstop the ears, that they might come to realize that they must quake before a holy God and they'd better do it soon. Lord, I pray that you would work in your church. We pray also, Lord, for all that has happened this morning. We pray for Joe. We bless you and thank you for the gift of men to your church. We pray also, Lord, for um, those who are leading our building campaign. And Lord, if we could put in a personal note here, we pray for our dear brother, Steve Wilson, who will undergo brain surgery this week. And we lift him up to you, Lord. We ask for your mercy and your kindness in his life. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the cross. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.